On this episode of On Top of PR, we are talking to Pavana. Pavana is an attorney with Davis and Gilbert in New York City, and she's going to share with us the five mistakes that many companies are making when it comes to social media, online reviews, and influencer marketing. I have gotten to know her and her firm over the years. They have been excellent trusted advisors to uh, my company and my agency team. And I am thrilled to share with them, with you these five mistakes that you and your uh, corporate marketers and even maybe your PR agency are making and that are really important that you uh, identify these now and address them as soon as possible to keep yourself out of trouble with the FTC and to make sure that your brand is doing everything it can to be ethical and in full compliance. Tune in. We're looking forward to a great episode. Welcome to On Top of PR with Jason Mudd, presented by ReviewMaxer. Welcome to the next episode of On Top of PR. I'm your host, Jason Mudd. Today, I'm joined by Pavana. Pavana, welcome to the show. Hi, Jason. I'm glad to be on. We are glad to have you and and glad to have an episode. Today's one is going to be very interesting. So we are talking about some of the pitfalls that companies make on social media and influencer campaigns. And I'm really excited to talk about this. This is a topic that I think is very important. But before we start, why don't you introduce yourself with just a few sentences of your uh, experience and background and who you are and other than just being an attorney who specializes in this type of work. Thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to be on. So my name is Pavana Kumar. I am an attorney in the advertising and entertainment group of Davis and Gilbert. Uh, What I do is I work with PR and ad agencies and their clients really in all aspects of their marketing. But in particular, I focus on social media campaigns with a special focus on influencer campaigns and paid media advertising and native. So what that means is I might be working with an agency on concepting an influencer campaign or a social media campaign, ensuring we're complying with the platform terms of use, but then also keeping in mind the regulatory landscape around influencer marketing and and how to engage on social, how to join the conversation, how to be edgy, how to be unique, but how to do it in a way that complies with the legal rules of the road. So I'm very happy to be here today. I promise that I will try to make it as interesting as possible and, and not a dry legal seminar and Certainly, Jason, I am uh, excited to have a back and forth with you about this topic. We're very excited to have you, too. And for those of our audience who don't know, Davis and Gilbert is a great law firm and one that has done tremendous work in our industry for uh, literally generations. So we're really pleased to have you representing that firm here today. Glad to hear that. You're listening to On Top of PR with your host, Jason Mudd. Jason is a trusted advisor to some of America's most admired and fastest growing brands. He is the managing partner at Axia Public Relations, a PR agency that guides news, social, and web strategies for national companies. And now, back to the show. Pavana, we're here to talk about the five mistakes that are commonly made with social media uh, and influencer campaigns that corporations, in my opinion, often don't even know they're making these mistakes and whether they're doing it in-house or they're using an outside agency, somebody's got to know about these mistakes and bring them to the attention of leadership uh, and the people operating the campaign so that they don't go south and and get themselves in trouble. Um, One of the things we've been talking about also, and I know we'll address this today, is I'm seeing a lot of media personalities doing personal uh, endorsed uh, or 
you know, some kind of receiving consideration for posting on social media. And I don't even think they realize what they're doing and nor does the company that they are endorsing uh, rec- uh, understands what they're doing. But, you know, as we talked about that, it's, um, uh, it's, it, it's advertising, whether they're receiving in-kind consideration or financial consideration, or they have a business relationship tangential, uh, you know, whether it's their, uh, their their TV station or maybe their uh, you know their PR agency or something like that. So um, you describe that as deceptive advertising, um, and uh, those are pretty strong words. So uh, let's dive into that. I think that's the hot topic I want to hear about. And um, so let's say um, that uh, there's a corporation and they've got a new product launch, and they're out there basically giving away free samples or free memberships or free products uh, to a media personality, so long as they'll do something on social media, uh, promoting it, ideally a video, whether that's on Instagram or Facebook or YouTube. Um, I think a lot of our audience will say, what's wrong with that? That happens every day. So let me turn it over to you to win friends. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad you teed it up that way because that's exactly the practice that we're seeing and that that many companies are managing programs just like that. I think to kind of maybe go to a first big mistake for companies is not having a good handle on the regulatory landscape. To your point, perhaps senior personnel or account teams are saying, you know, what's the problem? This is a standard practice. You know, you gift influencers, you send out product, you get the word out there. Uh, The Federal Trade Commission, which I'll call the FTC, does regulate this practice under its guides regarding the use of endorsements and testimonials and advertising. And generally, when you have influencers or other personnel speaking on behalf of a brand, that's going to be considered commercial speech. That's going to be considered advertising for that brand. So the FTC says, you know, if there's a material connection Uh, between a brand and someone that is endorsing that brand and a consumer wouldn't reasonably expect that connection to be there, um, which really means they're expecting that the influencer or the incentivized consumer is expressing their own independent, unincentivized opinion, then that connection needs to be disclosed. Uh, Material connection is not just payment. I think that's a really important point. You know, let's say we're just sending gifts out, we're offering in-kind benefits, experiences, trips um, or other incentives in the hopes that an influencer or a consumer is going to post about the product, that connection needs to be disclosed. Uh, You know, the form of that disclosure is something we can get into in more detail, understanding that on social media platforms, we may have space constraints. um, And oftentimes, you know, companies want their influencers to be speaking organically, uh, perhaps as a pushback against saying this is an ad um, or something similar. But it is a hot topic that's really on the FTC's radar. I can say in my experience, perhaps more so than any other social media practices, the FTC is really looking at companies to take responsibility for instructing influencers and people to whom they gift product um, or offer other benefits to in exchange for posting um, to let those people know what their obligations are to clearly take them through how to properly disclose that relationship or how to disclose that benefit um, and then to have policies in place and ways to actually monitor and train these people to make sure that they're doing this. Well, that's great. And, and 
you know, obviously you can't speak on the behalf of the FTC, but you can certainly speak on behalf of what you've seen them do and how they're enforcing and, and, and case law or other incidences of, you know, cease and desist notices and, and maybe even some fines. Um, I'm not an attorney, so I don't pretend to be one on TV or on this episode, but uh, certainly, um, you know, I think the important thing message I think to send home is that um, it's not the influencer's job according to the FTC, on an isolated basis, right, to be responsible for this. But it's really everybody involved. Is that correct? That's exactly right. So the FTC has said many times, you know, both in its actions and informally, they're going to look to all involved parties to ensure compliance. So the FTC certainly has been monitoring individual influencers. Back in 2017, the FTC did a social media audit of sorts and sent letters to several influencers that they suspected were not disclosing relationships with brands. They also sent the warning letters to the brands themselves. Um, and in their actions, the FTC has certainly held brands responsible when they're really the entity that's responsible for managing and contracting these influencers. It's not a get out of jail free card to say, hey, we told this influencer one time that they had to disclose or it's our agency's responsibility right. even. But the FTC is really going to look at the companies to see, you know, what was their degree of involvement? Who's really running the show here? Who's monitoring these influencers and determining who's ultimately responsible? Well, I think it's, I, I it's going to end up being or is everybody who is involved, as you said. So, you know, if there's the client, the agency and their, um, uh, their influencer, you know, there's money changing hands between all three parties in some way or another. Um, so wouldn't they, so they're basically all three on the hook. Is that, is that fair? I think that's completely fair to say. The mm -hmm. FTC is certainly making moves to show that they will look at all parties, for example, by naming both the corporations and their agencies and recent enforcement actions. Mm -hmm. The fact that they're issuing warning letters to influencers themselves shows they're not afraid to take actions against individuals either. A couple of years ago, the FTC took action against the owners and operators of a gambling site that was running an influencer program. Uh, without requiring people to make appropriate disclosures. And their action was not only against the company, but also those individuals. Um, and in other enforcement actions, the FTC has brought actions not only against publishers, agencies, and the clients involved in sponsored content campaigns, but also there are CEOs and people in uh, senior positions in their individual capacities um, in terms of overseeing these campaigns. So it's certainly really important to look at who's running the show, look at the paper trail, and it's on all parties to ensure compliance with these disclosure obligations and other obligations. Well, I first attended a seminar put on by the folks at your organization, uh, Davis and Gilbert, back in 2014. And this is when this first kind of came to light for me. And then I attended future events on kind of an annual basis thereafter. So I, in my, I, I'm familiar with this um, situation. I bring it back and share it with my agency team so they're aware of it also. Uh, but as we kind of alluded to earlier, I'm just blown away by how many people, professionals in public relations and marketing, uh, agency side, corporate side, et cetera, have no idea that this even exists, no idea that there's some sort of uh, disclosure uh, and regulatory obligation. How soon, so if somebody's listening to this for the very first time, right, uh, a couple of questions here. One would be, how soon is too soon to start bringing in your legal counsel, whether that's in-house uh, corporate counsel or bring in your outside uh, law firm uh, to start having conversations about either, you know, let's start first with we're thinking about doing this. And then second, let's go into 
we've already started doing this and we may be out of compliance. That's a great question. I love being brought in at the ideation stage. Hey, we're thinking about running an influencer campaign. Why don't we work with, you know, either inside or outside legal counsel to figure out what we want it to look like? You know, how do you want to incentivize people? What do we want the ultimate messaging to be? And how do we structure this in a way that's compliant? Discussing at the outset is great because then you can have a contract in place that has all of the appropriate provisions in it, whether that's you know, you have to disclose whether that's hashtag ad, hashtag sponsored, or another disclosure that's more organic that you know, accurately describes what you're giving these people in exchange for posting. Uh, you know, be not posting anything that may infringe someone else's intellectual property, such as photos, celebrity references, other things that could pose a real issue for the company. Um, restrictions around, you know, what if they say something really offensive or inappropriate? Can you terminate that influencer before they become a PR disaster for the company and kind of work through all of those issues on the front end? Um, I love attaching an influencer policy to agreements with influencers. Sometimes for small deals, it might even be a standalone policy that you give people. If maybe it's you know two or three posts that really explain all of this in plain and clear English so you can paper that and make sure the influencers understand their obligations. Another reason to bring in legal counsel early, too, is to look at, you know, what platforms are you posting at? Are there unique issues? For example, the FTCs issued very specific guidance for how influencers should be disclosing their relationship on Instagram stories versus an Instagram post versus a snap. Uh, or now even on TikTok, there may be new guidance coming out as the FTC revisits how to make disclosures in light of, you know, changing consumer perceptions and evolving new social media platforms. So, Getting ahead of all of that can really help to have a plan in place uh, for how to instruct influencers and how to manage the program uh, before running into hot water. And to your point, Jason, you know, what if we already have an influencer program going? You know, it's never too late to reach out to legal counsel. One of the things the FTC will look at is, you know, well, at least did you try to monitor your influencers? And if you see influencers that aren't complying with their disclosure obligations, did you reach out to them to try to correct the problem? Did you then take action against that influencer if you see that they're continuing to not comply? Um, you know, I don't think the FTC intends to be unreasonable. I think they understand that, you know, influencers are still in general independent contractors. You know, ideally, a company would be reviewing and approving all of the posts. Uh, but perhaps for a campaign where you have 300 influencers that all received a $10 gift card and are posting, they understand they're not necessarily all getting better before they go out, as opposed to a fire Festival example where you have Kendall Jenner being paid $200,000 for an individual post. You absolutely want to be reviewing and approving that post. Right. But ultimately, you know, they'll hold companies to a reasonable standard of training, monitoring, and ultimately taking action if an influencer is not complying with these disclosure obligations. And, and one other thing I would mention, too, is the FTC has issued kind of increasingly easy-to-understand resources for companies and influencers. As recently as this past November, they issued a guide called Influencers 101 that doesn't really say anything new from what's been in the endorsement guides for the past few years, but it really lays out, here's how you disclose on each platform. And I, I think they're taking the position as that there's really no reason uh, for influencers not to understand their obligations and for us to make it easy how to communicate those disclosures. What is it that uh, is said, you know, ignorance is no excuse of the law, right? <laughs> I think this is a perfect example of that, that, right. uh, you know, like I said, amazes me that there's people out there saying I'm an expert and uh, I'm an expert um, influencer. I'm an expert in social media or, or influencer marketing. And yet you never heard of this and don't know about it. And so my, my thought is if you don't know about this, then maybe you shouldn't be practicing in this space because 
I said, you know, it's something that's out there and very clear. So I think the first thing we want to do is obviously put a link to this 101 document that you're describing um, in our show notes so that uh, our audience can access that very easily. So uh, is that something that you can provide to me and then I'll provide it in our show notes? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, that would be great. I'm, I'm sure everybody would want to download that. And, um, and, and, and speaking of which, you know, I'm just thinking kind of putting myself in the shoes of the audience, whether they're on their treadmill right now or walking the dog or, or who knows what they're doing, either or maybe they're driving and they're listening to this. And let's say maybe they're, you know, the VP of marketing or VP of corporate communications. And they're like, oh, this is a big deal. And we are not uh, in compliance. Um, what beyond reading that document, uh, which is really, uh, you know, a, a great first step, I imagine. What else should these corporate communicators, corporate marketers, um, influencers who might be also listening and even, you know, agencies who might be listening to this episode? What do they need to do after they've consumed that document? How else can they get uh, familiar and and comfortable kind of being aware and navigating this? So, well, first of all, if a company does not have both internal and external facing influencer policies, and frankly, also employee social media policies, um, they should absolutely have those, ideally a separate one for employees who also should be disclosing their relationship to the company if they're posting about it on social, right. um, or for an agency, if an agency's employee is posting about their client, the same disclosure obligations apply. And then right. on the influencer side, I like to recommend that companies have an internal document for teams that are actually managing these programs, um, mm -hmm. because typically that is, you know, a specific team or an account at the client or at the agency that's actually in the weeds with the influencers. You know, what documents are you sending them? What's the timeline? What's the plan for monitoring and training influencers? And kind of a, a general overview of how it works operationally. And then, of course, the external contracts. And I like to recommend, you know, having a few depending on the types of programs you might be running. Is it a one-off post? Is it a longer-term engagement? Is it an engagement with a micro-influencer with a very large reach? Is it more of a celebrity engagement, in which case maybe it's more like having talent contracts in place? But really working through all of that paperwork and then how that paperwork is documented and how the process is enforced to make sure that we have everything, you know, all our ducks in a row and that we're really buttoned up on that, on that front. Uh, the other thing I would say for, you know, anyone else listening, influencers, companies, the FTC has a lot of resources on this topic. They also have an FAQs on their endorsement guides that I can also link to in the show notes. Um, okay. And it goes through some very common scenarios for influencer marketing and also employees posting on social media. The FTC is actually currently in the process of reviewing its endorsement guides. They recognize that now that there are new platforms like TikTok and certain consumers are now perhaps more than ever almost expecting content on social to be sponsored as opposed to the opposite, which it may have been in, in 2009 when they first revised their endorsement guides. Um, so that guidance may change. But for now, that's that's the latest guidance. And it's very helpful. Uh, you know, we at DNG also publish very frequently on this just to give updates in the space you know, the most recent actions, what they mean and what the takeaway items are. And, you know, we can certainly add anyone that's interested to our mailing list to receive that kind of more insightful guidance too. Uh, but there are a lot of resources out there for self-education in this space as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, I subscribe to those bulletins that you send out. I find them very helpful. And just a good reminder to, again, when I have the platform to remind uh, our agency team, you know, just how important this is. And, and speaking of, you know, that was one of the big um, takeaways I remember from, you know, 
between 2014 and 2016, uh, attending content put on by your law firm where, um, you know, my I hate I don't want to use the expression my mind was blown, but certainly my mind was way opened up to the whole idea that, you know, arguably even um, and let me set the table here. So an employee of Axia Public Relations, my agency, if one of my employees went online and liked a Facebook post um, of one of our clients, um, arguably, at least my understanding was there should be some sort of disclosure even to have pressed that like that I have a business relationship with this company. And if you think about it, a like is not a comment. So there's no way really to comment on that. So that was kind of one of the things I'm like, well, then how the heck do you navigate that? <laughs> but, but clearly, um, you know, what else I learned um, is that, you know, if you are going to comment. And so, you know, we had, um, you know, we, we were in the middle of a product launch for one of our clients. They're launching a new product. And so I knew in my mind just a few days ago, I commented on their post of the new product saying, hey, this sounds like something great. I'm excited for you guys. Congratulations. And, um, you know, or something like that. And then I, it, in that seminar, I realized I need to go back and edit that post and say, you know, I'm pleased to have a business relationship with this company and wish them the best in rolling this out or something like that. And so we've uh, trained our team about that. And one of the big things is uh, online reviews. When you're leaving an online review for a company, um, I've, I've gone in and just said, you know, my company has a business relationship with this company. And during that process, we've become aware of their products and we've used their products and we've enjoyed having those products, you know, or, or consuming or, you know, ordering or whatever it is with those products. But, um, you know, I've learned it's important that you have to disclose that. Um, and, and there's a way I think you can do it where it's conversational, but yet still fully transparent. There's obviously another more rigid way to kind of put, you know, like all caps at the top and say, you know, disclosure, I have a business relationship kind of thing. But I find if you just make it conversational, but yet real, uh, that, that that's a pretty good start. Is, is, is that accurate? Yeah, I completely agree. You know, the FTC is not prescriptive in how to make those disclosures. It needs to be clear and conspicuously made and accurately describe the nature of the relationship. But yeah, for exactly, for something like a page review, it doesn't need to say this is advertising necessarily. But if someone got a free product to make the review, they can just say that organically in the review. Or, or in your example, there is a business relationship with a client. You'd even say you know, so proud of my client for XYZ initiatives right. um, or excited for my client's launch of the products. If it's otherwise apparent from the face of the post that there is that relationship, then there isn't the need for that additional prescriptive disclosure. Okay. Uh, the likes issue you raised is also an interesting one. I do get questions about that one a lot because the FTC has taken the position that liking um, a client page or a company with whom you have a material relationship is an endorsement. To be frank, I, I have not really seen much enforcement on that point because to your point, how do you really disclose a like? Right. Uh, the FTC may look at certain companies that are incentivizing likes on their pages to make it seem like they have greater support than they actually do as a generalized deceptive business practice rather than looking at the people that are liking to have an you know, onus to disclose. Yeah, sure. That makes sense. And even going so far to, to share a post, whether it's your own employer or it's a client that you and, and your employer work for. Uh, so in other words, um, let's use my company's example. If we post something on social media and one of our employees decides to share it, they have a burden to on that share to put some commentary that say, you know, this is my employer, uh, you know, kind of thing. 
I would say as a general rule, yes, the FTC will see that kind of action as essentially adopting the original post. And so it's likely to be an endorsement. You know, is there a gray area where there's no commentary, arguably no endorsement? Maybe I tend to look at those things on a case by case. The FTC has said that, you know, a blanket disclosure on an employee's social media page, you know, like in their profile that says, you know, I work for such and such isn't an adequate disclosure. It needs to be clear on the face of the Mm. actual post that has the relationship. Um, But that's not to say there's never a gray area. I certainly, you know, look at this kind of situation, assess the risk on a case by case, you know, maybe it's a sliding scale, Maybe it's, you know, a one-off post by an employee. Do we really need to have them revise it? Um, but as a general rule, that's a material connection that the employee would need to disclose. And it's a really good thing to make clear to employees in their policies. Uh, every time I present on this, whether it's at a corporation um, or at a PR agency, um, and there are employees there, it's always like, what? That's yeah. crazy. I post yeah. about our clients all the time. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's an important one to get across. It's, it's very eye-opening, and I also I think I give credit to your uh, law firm for educating me on, um, you know, the idea that uh, um, we should not be advising or recommending to our clients to say, hey, once you post this, send out an email and tell all your employees to go online and like it and comment and share on this post because that's also uh, unethical, and there's even some employment law uh, that wraps around that also. Uh, do we have time to talk about that briefly? Yeah, for sure. Well, so kind of setting aside the social media influencer policies from employee policies, you know, I think employee policies need to cover a lot of the same ground with respect to disclosure. Um, unlike though, with influencer policies, I think we need to tread a little more lightly with restricting what employees can and can't say online. And especially, you know, if they want to post legitimately about their work environment or complaints that they may have or things that may, you know, legitimately improve their working conditions. So I think companies need to tread a little bit more carefully with monitoring what their employees are saying online and deciding whether it's, you know, more of a PR debacle than not to, you know, refute it or to counter it online. Um, And certainly to have parameters in place with respect to, you know, clearly separating out disclosure obligations from any provisions in the policy that could be seen as, you know, limiting employee speech in a way that would uh, violate the NRLA and similar regulations. Right. And so, uh, you know, we're recording this on August 18th of 2020. And, uh, you know, for the last, uh, honestly, I don't remember how long, but the last, you know, several months, I guess, uh, you know, one topic has been, you know, uh, that we've been talking about at our PR agency and with other PR professionals is, uh, you know, advocacy and obviously uh, the role of activism. And, you know, can employee, can employers dictate to their employees what they can and can't talk about? Uh, you know, and I would say, imagine in a in a uh, in a in a very professional uh, like professional services or professional advisor type positions. You know, can they say, you know, hey, you've got to remain quiet on this issue, or you've got to remain neutral, or we're just not talking about it, um, kind of thing. And maybe on the opposite side, where maybe a company is very passionate, um, and maybe a company is and uh, you know involved in activism on their own. And you know, can can they mandate uh, either way, right? What a uh, employee Uh, should and shouldn't do um, related to any particular cause. Yeah, I mean, I I think that employers can legitimately ask employees to keep their personal and their business, social media and other accounts separate to try to create that divide between what's their personal speech and what they're saying on behalf of the employer. I think Mm -hmm. we have a little bit more reach when it comes to what an employee may be saying on behalf of the employer. Again, I think we need to be careful in terms of reviewing employee speech online. Are they saying something 
blatantly offensive or shocking or not in line with the company's corporate values, in which case some recourse may be warranted and, and certainly maybe maybe the company may be able to do that. Um, or is there an employee that's complaining about, you know, a working environment or wage issues um, or other issues that they may legitimately be entitled to express an opinion about if it could create a productive improvement to the working environment. You know, things like sexual harassment claims um, and other similar related issues. I think companies are currently really trying to uh, embrace transparency and show that they encourage their employees to raise these issues. And especially in the current climate, I think that's practically an important thing to do. Um, so again, it's a it's really a case by case, but but there are certain handcuffs on limiting employee speech that wouldn't necessarily imply apply to influencer speech, but companies may want to adopt a more uniform approach across the board, just in the spirit of transparency and encouraging discussion around these issues. And one complication of that is obviously employment laws vary from state to state. There's federal laws and, and local laws that the company has to navigate also. And then I, I think you've got to, um, you know, think about, um, uh, you know, what is and obviously trade secrets or confidential information that, you know, a company might be able to enforce uh, someone not being able to share socially and publicly. But obviously working conditions and things like that, you know, are, are probably more fair game. Right, right, exactly. And it's perfectly legitimate to have restrictions on sensitive company proprietary or confidential information in both types of policies. That's correct. Okay, so we set out today to talk about five things. Um, I think we covered two, three. Do you have any idea where we are? <laughs> Uh, I think if we were if we were going to list a five, and we could delve into any of them, um, time permitting. But I think first is you know not having a good understanding of what the legal regulations are, you know, be not having strong influencer and employee policies in place, you know, C, not actually training and monitoring these uh, employees and influencers to make sure that they are disclosing and and otherwise monitoring to make sure they're not saying something that could be a PR disaster for the brand. I'd uh, say D would be being really careful with employee and influencer review practices. You touched on this briefly, uh, but to your point, if there's a product launch, immediately emailing all of your employees to go and leave five-star reviews on Amazon or another retailer platform. Um, as probably many of our listeners are aware, Sunday Riley and, and other companies have gotten in hot water for practices just like that. And it's also a PR disaster if those internal communications become public. Um, and then I'd say probably number five would be, you know, not having good operational procedures in place to uh, ensure compliance and take action against employees and influencers that aren't complying with these policies, you know, to the extent permitted by law, especially when it comes to employees. Uh, but I think all of those five taken together, um, if rectified, means the company's really taking good, positive steps to ensure compliance on both the influencer side and the employee side. And has the records and the paperwork, if God forbid it ever were an investigation, to show that, hey, we're really trying to do everything we can right. here to be in compliance with the latest regulations. Totally agree. That's that's uh, well said and, and well put. Uh, as you were going through each of those, I started thinking, you know, who owns the responsibility for this uh, in-house? Is that going to be, um, you know, the HR department for employees and, uh, you know, the marketing department for influencers? or does legal own it all, or is it done by committee? What, what would be kind of in your experience, the best um, best case scenario or best practice? Certainly HR for, for employee issues. For influencer issues, I certainly think, I'm also the, the in-house employment lawyer, um, assuming there is one. Yeah. And then on if the- not one, get one. 
<laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, out, out, I mean, uh, an outside one, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I'd say for influencer campaigns, it's typically, you know, quote unquote, owned and managed by marketing teams. Uh, but the in-house counsel that's responsible for marketing and advertising should absolutely be looped in at all stages of development. Um, I'm not sure if you're getting at, you know, who may have the legal responsibility. I think that tends to depend on the company's bureaucracy. But in the FTC's actions, they're really looking at senior management that had the that was running the show and overseeing the contracts and ultimately managing the campaign. So that, that person may vary depending on how it's structured. Gotcha. Gotcha. You know, uh, this, uh, vodcast is brought to you by our presented by review maxer who actually helps companies get online reviews, um, through or at least monitor and, uh, manage and promote those online reviews. And so, you know, uh, I, I, I know that there's the platform ReviewMaxer works with Amazon and 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 Yelp and uh, a lot of other platforms. And one thing that that I know is uh, from uh, ReviewMaxer is that um, you know Yelp has certain uh, criteria for reviews, and um, and and of course so does Amazon. And uh, you know years ago I um, you know. Uh, I got a product from a client and I tried to leave them a review. I thought it was an honest and fair review. And I included in there that I was, you know, uh, had a business relationship with them because I learned that from your firm. And uh, Amazon came back and said, no, we're not going to post your review. And uh, and it was funny because the client kept saying, hey, I thought you said you were going to post a review. And I said, I did. And they took it down. And it's almost like they didn't believe me. So I kept forwarding, you know, the emails where they wouldn't let me do it. And then once they knew I couldn't do anything to get, you know, no matter how much I disclosed, they just wouldn't let me post that. That review at the same time. And I think like everybody in the world, uh, you know, uh, has been, or at least in the U S has been buying more from Amazon during the pandemic. And, um, you know, now I'm getting these things that come in the package that say, Hey, thank you for leaving a review or I'm sorry, thank you for your order. If you leave a review and send us, um, you know, uh, a link to it or, or a screenshot of it, we'll, we'll send you a $20 gift card on Amazon or something like that. Uh, so I'm seeing that as a consumer, not an influencer, because I don't think that I am. I'm just a regular consumer. But then I'm also seeing where these companies are reaching out to me again and saying, hey, we just launched this new product. We'll send you a free product. as long, uh, You have to buy it first and then we'll refund your money separately if you leave a review. Uh, that's got me scratching my head just a little bit because it seems as if that's, um, you know, I'm receiving, I would be receiving some sort of incentive or consideration for one, buying the product and, and two, leaving a review. They're not mandating because I know that's what I mentioned Yelp for earlier and others is you can't say if you like this product, leave a review. If you don't, I, th I think you could say if you like this product, please leave a review. If, if you don't like this product, let us know how we can fix it. Is that a fair line or do they need to take it as, uh, do they need to back off a little bit of planting a seed of what action we want you to take? Because uh, it, it's clear they're trying to avoid saying post a negative review. Right. I mean, you can't require a consumer to only post if it's positive because that right. would violate the requirement that their you know, raw reviews have to be the honest opinion of the person that's posting it. Something a little softer, like if you like this, post a review. I'd perhaps err on leaving out the second half of what you said, which is if you right. don't like it, don't post a review, but let us know how we can improve. Perhaps right. a softer, you know, didn't like it, let us know how we can improve, but you're not right. handcuffing them from writing a review. That probably and, and I should correct that. That's what they're yeah. doing. I should correct. Yeah. That's what they're doing is they say, if you like this, please read a review. If you don't like it, contact us and we'll make it right. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that probably poses a relatively low risk of enforcement, assuming the person can, in fact, go and post a negative review if they like. I think companies are trying to do that understandably to encourage people to only post if it's positive. But in that situation, there's no incentive for posting the review. So someone's not going to necessarily post a more positive review because they were incentivized. In the kind of loophole situation where you, you were describing, I don't think rejiggering the chronology such that someone's getting a refund after the fact and all of the other details really makes a difference. Ultimately, if you're incentivizing someone to leave a review, even if it's that they already purchased the product and you say, hey, liked it, leave a review and you get 20% off your next purchase, that's the kind of thing that would need to be disclosed in the review. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And and it seems like for some of these companies, which I have no business relationship with other than I bought their product, uh, they are not looking for you to do that, right? I mean, they, uh, from what I understand from my clients and friends who are Amazon merchants, right? Amazon does the best to not even give you uh, their contact information other than a mailing address, which is why they insert in the package, you know, a little note or something that says, you know, right. here's how you can reach us kind of thing. So yeah. it's an interesting time that we live in, not only in 2020, but just overall with, you know, where the world is going with how direct, um, you know, consumer and uh, and company relationships can be, but then there's intermediaries like Amazon and Yelp, uh, as I mentioned earlier, who have their own you know rules and the own you know the the ways they want them to interact. So yeah, I think everybody's trying to kind of control their space a little bit and and, and preserve their relationships. Um, and then at the same time, you've got organizations like the FTC who are looking out to protect consumers as they should. And I think uh, we as marketers and communicators, we should be uh, we should find that to be a noble and important process that we should honor. And we honor it by, I think, finding trusted advisors like you to guide us through this process, uh, keep us advised of, 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 of what's happening and changing and how we need to evolve. And as you said earlier, and, and I completely agree, if we're going to be experts in this space, we have to understand it entirely and advise clients, uh, even if it's sometimes against their will or their wishes, <laughs> that this is not the right way to do it. And here's why. Uh, and you can't make people leave reviews and you can't make them only leave uh, positive reviews. Uh, but there's certainly way, ways that, that you articulated and I've articulated and our friends at ReviewMax are do where there is alternate methods to sharing your complaint or your issues so that we might resolve them amicably before our reputations take a hit over over that process. I think that's absolutely right. And the world of marketing is all interconnected. You know, influencer marketing isn't a siloed field. You may be overlapping, to your point about retail, with e-commerce initiatives, offers. You have influencers going out and communicating things about a new offer or a product offer or a discount. You know, all of those types of things are going to be need to run through your e-commerce team. You know, what disclosures they need to include. Can influencers support the claims they're making about your products? It's it's all really connected to the world of advertising and marketing. And of course, probably beyond the scope of this vodcast. But I think that's important to remember, too. It's not that when you have influencers going out and speaking on behalf of your company, the buck stops with the disclosure obligations. But it's it's all of those communications need to be reviewed as marketing and advertising communications as well. So integrity and transparency is what I always say. So this has been a great conversation. I know I'd love to have you back in the future. So I will be in touch with you about that. Uh, As our audience has listened to or watched this episode, I'm sure they're thinking I need to learn more. So what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? And what's the best way for them to, um, you know, get uh, these bulletins and announcements from your firm? 
So we can share my email address, uh, Jason, perhaps we can add that to the notes. So however sure. else is easiest to communicate it to the audience, feel free to reach out to me directly. I'm happy to get anyone that is interested onto our mailing lists. Also happy to hear from anyone individually if they have questions or would like to discuss any of these topics or uh, are intrigued or have been made extremely afraid by any of the things that we discussed today. <laughs> yeah. Um, are you on uh, Twitter or LinkedIn or anything like that? Uh, yes, I am on Twitter. Um, I can share my uh, Twitter handle and LinkedIn bio as well. Okay, great. If you don't mind, maybe uh, verbally share your Twitter handle and your email address for those who are listening and on the go or something like that. Absolutely. My Twitter is at lpavana, uh, which is L-P-A-A-V-A-N-A. And then my email address is pkumar, which is K-U-M-A-R at dglaw.com. That's pkumar at dglaw.com. Perfect. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for being on this episode. It was a pleasure to get to know you better and share your smarts with our audience. And I'm sure they are going to uh, be somewhat burdened by this conversation, but at the same time, glad that they are now in the know and able to respond and advise and guide their brands uh, through and navigate these waters, which, you know, have, I think for some of them have become a lot more difficult, but a lot more meaningful for them to understand the best practices and the right way to be in full compliance with, you know, what's in the best interest of consumers overall. Great. Well, thanks so much for having me today. My pleasure. Thank you and be well. You too. This has been On Top of PR with Jason Mudd, presented by Review Maxer. 